Hey guys, welcome to another session of Straight Up Mortgage Talk. Today, we're gonna to talk about 1031 exchanges and how to save taxes when selling investment properties. I am lucky enough to have Greg Burns from IPX 1031, a division of the big Fidelity companies. So he's the expert on this. Let's get started. All right, hey Greg, I uh, wanted to do a thing on 1031 exchanges and I just had a real smooth transaction with uh, one of your offices uh, down in uh, San Diego County and Orange County, I think it was actually. And I asked them, who's the expert to talk to you about this? And they said, oh, Greg, man, he's awesome. He knows everything. He's like a wealth of knowledge. I was like, like I want that guy's name. So, hey, I really appreciate you being on here. Could you give us just like a, you know, these are for realtors and for clients who just kind of want to know like basics of a 1031. Why would somebody do it? Um, what's the purpose of it? That kind of stuff. Just a sort of, I don't know, quick, quick little, how's it work? Yeah. What does it do? Yeah, well, I think the first place to start is what is an exchange, right? So 1031 or 1031 exchange is a section of the tax code which allows somebody that owns a property that they've held for investment or business use to right. sell that asset and exchange it for another asset that they intend to hold for investment or business use. And the ultimate goal of that is to defer the payment of capital gains taxes. So it allows people to kind of move in between investment and business use properties without having to worry about paying the capital gains taxes on the sale of that. So, you know, it basically stimulates the real estate economy on the investment side, you know, allows investors to sell apartment buildings, buy new apartment buildings or whatever they may want to do. And, uh, you know, it's, it's only based in real estate now. Um, when the 2017 tax reform bill out came out, they eliminated it for personal property. So it only deals with real estate, but it's become a pretty popular, uh, you know, section code. We're seeing obviously a lot of transactions, people doing exchanges for various reasons right now. Uh, and uh, so, I mean, happy to answer any questions you have, you know, about the process or kind of how the process works. So this, I'm just going to sort of summarize it for people. There's some, some people here don't even know, like, what's 1031? Is that going to happen if I sell my, you know, current residence? If you have a primary residence, you have tax exemptions are different, right? You get to, after two years, you don't have capital gains. What is capital gains? Well, if I buy an investment property, and I buy it for 100,000 and then I sell it for 500,000. There's some write-offs, but technically I could have $400,000 subject to right now, a 20% federal in, in California, 9% state and lose that money versus if I do the 1031, I get to roll that money into the next property. And, it, and, and so kind of ex explain how that happens. So that money the only way to not have a tax is you have to roll it into an escrow exchange company like yours. Yeah. So if somebody goes out, they market a property, they hire a real estate agent, they go market the property for sale. Property gets, uh, they get a, an offer, they accept the offer, they open up an escrow. And then prior to escrow closing, they would hire a company like ours. People refer to us as a, a accommodator, facilitator. The IRS calls us a qualified intermediary. And we basically assign into the transaction kind of as the seller for the client so that when the sale closes, the proceeds from the sale come over to us. And at that point, the client has some time deadlines they have to comply with. They've got 45 days from that day to identify the property that they would like to purchase. And then they've got another 135 days after that to get that purchase to close. So it's a total of 180 day period. Um, typically in today's market, the most challenging part of it is that identification period. Uh, there's, you know, obviously limited inventory unless you're buying in New York. Um, I, I heard a, was on a 
podcast a, um, a couple of weeks ago and my agent in San Luis was talking to a top agent in New York and then agent in New York asked her what was the average days on market in San Luis and she said seven days and then she he said well how, what do you think is the average days on market in New York she said I don't know like you know 15 days and he's you know it's 416 days so so, so if you're so looking longer. for a replacement property New York might be a good place to find it awesome so what are some of the biggest mistakes people are? so basically you represent the company because people aren't allowed to touch that money if they touch right. that money if it comes into them instead of coming to you as the accommodator and then directly into the other investment they end up being subject to capital gains so what are some of the major mistakes people make when they're kind of considering doing a 1031 or my biggest thing is not knowing they need to yeah, so obviously that's a big point, right? So we have clients all the time that, uh, in fact, I get calls probably once a week from somebody that says, oh, I sold this property a couple of weeks ago, but I'm buying this other property, but I didn't know about 1031. So, uh, but can I go back and I, you know, give you the money or how can that work? So, but once escrow is closed on their sale, if you don't have an exchange set up, you no longer have the ability to do one. But I would say probably the, the biggest mistake people make is they don't, do advanced planning on their sale. Like, you know, if you're selling a property, it's an investment property and you uh, wanna do an exchange, the mm -hmm. really the question you should be answering yourself is asking yourself is why am I selling this property and what am I trying to accomplish by selling it, right? Are you trying to increase cash flow? Are you doing it for geographic reasons? Are you moving, you know, the asset to another part of the country? Are you doing it because you wanna buy a retirement home that you're going to hold as an investment for a while and then ultimately use as a second home or a vacation home or go retire there. So you, but you need to go into it with a plan. And then the next thing is to make sure that that plan is executable. Make sure that you are not saying, Hey, I want to go buy a property in Coronado Island down in San Diego. And then you find out that there's like almost no properties listed for sale down there. And it's going to be very challenging for you to complete that exchange. So it's important that you go into it with a plan and then that you make sure that that plan is executable. I would say the biggest mistake people makes is they, you know, talking to a real estate agent, real estate agent said, Hey, your property's worth, you know, a million dollars. And they think, well, I've only bought it for 400,000. So I got to sell it. Right. Uh, but they don't, they want to keep the money into real estate. Well, that may not be the best move. So it's important to say, okay, well, if I do want to sell it, what do I want to go do? Do I want to try to build my wealth and go buy a, you know, duplex or a triplex, or, you know, am I looking for a passive investment? Am I going to try to find like a triple net lease investment? Uh, so it's important to have a plan in place. I would say that's the, probably the, the number one biggest mistake that people make. So, and, and beyond that, it's like, they, they don't talk to their accountants first because, yeah. Unfortunately, not every some real estate agents are new and they don't sort of know to warn them, hey, there might be a tax event here if you're selling this property or whatnot. And so they always, you know, talk to your accountant before you do this, because um, one, it may not make sense for you to do the 1031 because maybe you don't have that big a deal of capital gains and maybe take it now because capital gains may go up in the future. Or maybe, like you say, planning it, part of that planning is before you go list it and decide to do something. The other thing you mentioned I thought was really um, fascinating is that a lot of people do this and they always wonder like, how long do I have to do this? Meaning you're gonna sell the property up in sort of, you know, where there's no ocean view and that investment property you've had, you're gonna go ahead and invest in something closer to the beach so that you can have that second home or that retirement home. And then like, how soon can I move into it? 
and not sort of put it at risk? What's the sort of guide there that people sort of follow? So we used to tax, most tax advisors used to say, hold the property for a clean tax year and it would probably satisfy the IRS's held for investment part of an exchange. Um, but um, there was a revenue ruling that came out several years ago that said any property that was held as an investment for two years or more in an audit, the IRS wouldn't challenge the held for investment portion of the exchange. So most tax advisors give you that two year span. But I think you brought up a really good point, which is, you know, it's important to talk to your tax advisors prior, prior to selling a property. I mean, I had a client called me, uh, you know, I was just running back to the office from, from uh, an escrow office and I uh, was talking to a client on the phone and they said, hey, um, I want to do an exchange. This property has been an investor property for about 17 months. And I said, okay, well, how long have you owned it? He said, well, I've owned it for about six years. I said, well, what did you do? before it was an investment property. So it was my primary residence. I said, well, <laughs> you know, the rules for primary residence say that if you live in that property for two of the last five years, you can take up to a $250,000 tax exclusion or up to 500,000 if you're married. And so you really don't have to do an exchange. You could just take that money tax-free and then reinvest it in the market when you're ready to go. So that's a, a important part of the sales process is to talk to your tax advisor to make sure that they're on board with what you're doing. Money exchange, paying extra fees, trying to identify a property you may really didn't want because you had to move fast, and yeah. lo and behold, you had you had anywhere from two fifty to half a million that was going to be tax free anyway, and you could reinvest. So there's a couple of questions that I had, and I'm gonna have to read these. Um, and I don't. I, this is the part that always confuses me: is one. A couple things. What are some of the options for people to actually sell real estate, maybe buy into like a real estate investment trust, or maybe they don't want to deal with tenants anymore. They'd yeah. rather, they'd rather kind of take that into a financial, more of a sort of passive type thing and them not being as involved, but they still want to take advantage of the 1031. Yeah. So that's the first one. And the second one, and I don't know if you can combine this, but is Let's say somebody wants to pull some of that money out. Can they pull some of that money out and pay? Like, let's say they, they want to get a little bit more mortgage and they want to keep some of the money out to do some improvements to the new one or whatnot. Is there a way to do that and just be subject to the capital gains on that portion pulled out? So two yeah, things. So, yeah, so we'll address the, the second question first. So okay. you can do a partial exchange. We do have clients that do that all the time where you have a client that may be is selling an asset for 500000 and they want to take... $25,000 to pay off some debt or, or do, I'd say take a vacation, but none of us are doing that these days. Uh, <laughs> that you can take some proceeds from the sale and, and just pay taxes on those funds. You could do what they call a partial exchange where you're not completely reinvesting all of the proceeds from the sale. There's two basic rules that you need to do when you're doing an exchange, which is buy something equal or greater in value to what you sold and then reinvest all the proceeds from the sale. So you can do a partial exchange where you either take some cash from the sale or you buy maybe a less expensive property. Let's say you sell for 500 uh, and you find a property you really like, but it's only 450,000. And so you can still do an exchange. You can still defer taxes, but you're going to pay taxes on that $50,000 difference. Got it. Um, now, as far as back to the first question, there are a lot of clients that are looking for passive types of investments. Uh, typically, this is, uh, you know, 
baby boomer generation, they are in what they call the preservation of wealth mode, kind of retirement mode. So they're saying, listen, I don't necessarily need to make more money as far as appreciation goes, but I don't want to lose any money. And what I'm really looking for is quality of life. So I want to, you know, invest these into assets where I'm not having to worry about, you know, tenants and termites and toilets and trash and all the fun things that are associated with <laughs> landlords do all, all the terrible things right <laughs> yeah and so you are seeing a huge move into like these triple net lease investments you are seeing people move into a product called the dst a delaware statutory trust where these big syndication companies go out and they buy these large institutional kind of deals and then they sell off proportionalized interest in these properties and we have clients exchanging into those deals all the time and there is a special election that allows someone to exchange into a REIT. It's called a 721 election. And what it does is it allows somebody to exchange in and kind of get partnership operating units in the REIT. Um, there's not a, a tremendous amount of publicly held ones that do it, but right. you can do it. Uh, and then what has happens is you have these partnership operating units, you get paid a dividend with these partnership operating units. And if you ever want to get out, what you do is you uh, convert your shares to this thing called an upreit into stock. And at that point, they would become taxable. So I think the reason that, that, that the REIT, uh, you know, the 721s aren't as popular as, you know, regular exchanges or maybe DSTs is one, you know, you can't exchange into like Blackstone, right? Or, or some of the top REITs that everybody knows about. And then, cause, uh, and then two, you can never get out of them without paying taxes. So right. that's another challenge is that you're kind of stuck in there um, and you're, you don't have the ability to trade out of them, but it is an option. And we do have, have had certainly have clients in the past that have gone, you know, down that road. Awesome. Okay. So this is one I think I should know, but I don't. And, and, and Kara, who's helping with this, uh, found it on the internet and she says, you know, what is a mortgage boot? And I go, I don't know, actually, to be <laughs> honest with you. So I got to ask that question. I feel stupid not knowing, but. Well, it's not really a mortgage question, right? It's always, a, uh, it's, it's really more of an exchange question. So boot is something that's anything that you receive that's not really like-kind real estate. So there's two forms of boot. There's cash boot and mortgage boot, right? So let's say I sell a property for $500,000 and let's say that's the net sales price. So let's say I sold for $525,000. I paid roughly 5% of closing costs. So my net sales price is $500,000. Let's okay. say I have $300,000 of cash and I had a $200,000 loan. Okay. Let's say I go buy a property for $450,000. I put my $300,000 down. I get a new loan for $150,000. I'm $50,000 short. That's what they call mortgage boot or debt relief. And I've got to okay. pay taxes on that $50,000. Got and it. that's what mortgage boot is. Now, because- in the same transaction, I could take out $50,000 of cash. And I could get, you know, so I could put $250,000 down. I could get, you know, a loan for, you know, $250,000. So my mortgage has gone up, but I'm still down $50,000, but I now have cash. It's $50,000 of what they call cash boot. So you still pay taxes on it either way. That's right. That's right. Got it. Okay. So that's what I was, so that's when people get a higher mortgage. I've heard it's always, you have to get a mortgage equal to or larger. And it's really because of the boot in a well, sense, right? Yeah. So the rules, the basic rules that most real estate agents learn are one, buy something equal or greater in value to what you sold, reinvest all your proceeds and get equal or greater. Right? But you can offset debt with cash 
if you want to. Like I had a client that just sold an asset. It was a large asset and they didn't have a lot of debt on it. And when they purchased the new assets, they didn't want to take on any debt. Uh, and so they ended up uh, you know, coming out of pocket with some funds uh, to put it down on the property. So you can offset debt with cash, but for most people, they're going to get a mortgage that's equal probably or greater Okay, so I got, I got a question on uh, when they do when they go through the the ten thirty win exchange, and what what so for example, I original property I did was two hundred thousand, then I exchanged it into uh, five hundred thousand, and then I exchanged it to a million, and now all of a sudden, you know, I'm still alive. It has been inherited and stuff up in the tax base. It's a whole other conversation. But now I go to sell that property. For some reason, I need cash, you know, medical concerns or whatever. Explain to people, once you've exchanged, how does how is the capital gains taxed at that point? So what happens is, is your tax basis follows you. I, I'm always interested. It's interesting because, you know, over the years, I've had clients where I've done an exchange for them and then maybe call me six months later and they'll say, hey, Greg, um, I just got a call like this like two weeks ago. They said, hey, Greg, I just completed my exchange like four months ago, and I wanted to know how long I have to hold this property before I can sell it. And I said, so do you want to do another exchange? I said, Are you, you know, because typically flipping properties is not, you know, 1031 is not a good right. candidate for that. It's more of a health for investment. Right. And I said, oh, you want to go do another exchange? She said, no, no, I just want to sell it and cash out. And I said, uh, well, you can sell it at any time and cash out. She said, well, why would they let you do that? And she, I said, she said, why would you let you do what? And he said, well, why would they let you, you know, do a 1031 exchange, buy this new property, and then sell it and not pay any taxes? And I said, who said anything about paying, not paying any taxes? So your, your basis follows you from property to property, right? So if I bought a property for 200000 and it went up to five hundred, and I sold my property for five hundred, my basis is still what I paid for it, less any depreciation I've taken, right? So I still have, let's say, say I didn't take any depreciation. So my basis is 200,000. I have a $300,000 gain. Sell that property for 500. Let's say I buy a new property for 700, right? I can add 200 onto my basis because I went up by $200,000, right? But I still, that basis still follows me over. So I get the 200 plus the additional 200. Now let's say that property is worth a million. So I had a $400,000 basis, right? Because remember, I started with 200. Right. I got additional 200 because I went up in value in my exchange. But my property appreciated by another 300. So my basis is 400,000. If I sell for a million, I got to pay capital gains taxes on 600,000. So the, 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 your taxes are still there. You're just deferring them from, from property to property. And, right. you, know, uh, you know, you brought up a really good point earlier, Tim, when you said, you know, capital gains taxes are low. We, we are seeing clients that are selling their assets that are kind of on the fence about trading because capital gains taxes are low and they're current. They're, you know, worried that maybe the current administration may raise, uh, you know, long-term capital gains tax rates. They've certainly talked about that, whether that actually happens or not, we don't know. But there is certainly some concern about that in the market. Right. So there's an argument, hey, we're mostly paying, depending on the income level, and if people at this income level are, you know, probably making decent money to be able to afford assets or investments and things like that. Hey, if I'm paying 30 cents on the dollar federally, you know, and 35 cents on the dollar for my income earned, and I'm only paying 20% on capital gains, money that's made based on appreciation and stuff that maybe they'll 
potentially raise capital gains rate to be more in line with earned income. And that's where the concern is like, should I dump the properties now and pay 10% less or whatever it might be? And that's yeah. that's kind of something that's been talked about. All right, so um, then there's something else we found the internet cares, like was searching this and being interested in what our conversation was gonna be. And the question was, when it's, if, what about a seller carry, carry back on a 1031 and it's something about like a 453 internal revenue deal is this current right. stuff yeah so i, so I didn't know what it was yeah 453 is a section of the tax code that deals with notes right so if i carry back a note on a property let's say this property that i bought for 200 is worth 500,000 somebody wants to buy it from me and they're going to give me $250,000 of cash down but they want me to carry back a note for $250,000. The question is, can I exchange? How does that work? So the note, you certainly could exchange the $250,000 that you got as a down payment, mm -hmm. but the note is taxed as the principal payments are made. So if you have like a five-year interest only note, at the end of five years is when you would end up paying your taxes on that note. So typically notes aren't great uh, in a 1031 if the client's looking to do a 1031 into a new property, but Occasionally, a note works out well for a customer. A note, you know, I had a client that selling an asset in the Inland Empire. Uh, they got a great note at a great interest rate. They were kind of an older uh, gentleman that had owned the asset for like 40 years. And I said, I don't think I'd worry about it. You've got a great note. You've got a great piece of property that's securing the note. And uh, you've got a good interest rate, way better than you're going to earn in any bank. So I would just take the note back and just, you know, pay the taxes as the principal payments are made. So for so him, he didn't even he, need to do the 1031. He could pay taxes on. So let's say he he got ten thousand dollars a year or twenty thousand dollars a year in principal. He'd only pay the taxes as he received that's the right. principal back because it's, it wasn't in one lump sum. Right. Which is a good way for somebody who's had a lot of assets but now doesn't have a lot of retirement cash flow wise, like a Calpers or a Calsters or whatever. They could actually right. get an income stream and pay right. the taxes each year as they're receiving it. So that's a really uh, awesome one. Now, well, can anything I, can, else? Can I ask I, you a question? Yeah. <laughs> so I would say, you know, going back to the question you asked me about things that um, clients should kind of plan for when they're doing an exchange is on the financing side. Because I know that when you're doing, you know, when I'm buying a, a second home or I'm buying a primary residence, the lending criteria is not the same as it would be if I was buying an investment property. So I certainly think that, you know, talking to your lender, uh, you know, before you go into that transaction is important. I had a client um, that was sold an asset when it was going through the exchange process and then went to go get a loan on the new property and couldn't get a loan because they didn't qualify. So I yeah. think that, uh, yeah, yeah, so I think that that's important. Um, yeah. And so what's the lending criteria look is how does it differentiate between investment property versus somebody that's just buying a single family as their primary? Okay. So <clears throat> three, right? Single family or, you know, regular primary, second home investment property. So primary residence, of course, you're qualifying for the entire payment based on your income to debt ratios. Second home, if you're going to truly make it a second home, meaning I'm going to use it as a vacation home or whatever, I'm qualifying for my primary residence and the second home without any use of rents. Investment property, I'm going to be able to use 75% of the potential rents to offset my payment. And the reason they give you 75% of the potential rents from the appraisal property 
or from what the appraiser states is because they're going to allow 25% for vacancy and repairs. So they're, they're taking a pretty conservative approach by giving you 75% credit. So if somebody, it's a little bit easier to qualify, but they have to qualify for their current residence and whatever debt they have. And of course they have to qualify for the investment property with the 75% offset in most cases. Some investors don't allow that so that they say, look, you have to have management history and all that kind of stuff. But obviously with an exchange, you should have a two-year uh, uh, rental history or, or management history, they call it. So now what do you see as far as rates go? I mean, I, I think, you know, rates, uh, you know, they differentiate a little bit between a primary residence and investment. I mean, that, what's the gap that you see between those? So one of the biggest advantages of doing like primary residence or even a second home, even though that second home is addition, you've qualified without use of rents. It's really up to you qualifying. And so the primary and the second home are pretty much the same rate. Whereas you go into an investment property, again, this depends hugely on credit scores and the percentage of the down payment. But I would say about three eighths to a half point difference on an investment property. For example, Fannie Mae charges an extra two points for an investment property as compared to a primary residence. And every point's about a quarter in rate. So okay. somebody could say, look, you know what? I've got all this money. I'm gonna go ahead and buy my points down because we're at 45 to 50 year lows. They could pay those points and get kind of close to what they would get on a primary residence. But unless they pay those extra points, it's about a half point difference in interest rate. Okay. Right. Yeah, one of the biggest challenges that my clients come across when they're on the residential side is that they sell, let's say, you know, residential property that they put into an LLC that's got multiple members. And as part of the 1031, you have to keep the taxpayer at the same. And then they come to somebody like you and they say, hey, I'm buying this duplex, but I've got to buy it in this LLC. And I know that, that uh, Fannie and Freddie don't lend to LLCs, so that becomes a huge challenge as well, right? So then they're going to be going to like a regular, say, commercial bank or community bank, and they're going to be, you know, well, like probably a point to 2% higher in right. rate because now, because they put an LLC. So, and that's a whole other discussion we'll have at a different time, yeah. whether you should put an <laughs> LLC versus getting an umbrella, which is what I've done. So, hey, Greg, so thanks again for the time. But how would people get a hold of you? Why would they get a hold of you? And what's the best way to get a hold of you if they uh, they know they need help with an exchange or have questions? Well, certainly the clients are always welcome to call me. I, I'm you can involve any point during the process, whether they're thinking about putting a property on the market, they've just got some questions, or they've got a property on the markets in escrow, you know, and they need to get an exchange set up. The easiest way is to call me, or you certainly you can email me. Um, you can email me at Greg dot burns at ipx1031.com but either way is fine and uh, you know i'm here to help them in any way i can and we notice on the zoom that's your the phone number you're okay with calling us the 66 that's my cell number 2773 direct to the big brain on 1031 exchanges and uh, if he doesn't know the answer i'm sure he can tell you where to go get it and again him the lender and cpa are all people you should be talking about before you get into this endeavor because one, if you don't do it at all, it could cost you a heck of a lot of money. And one of the biggest problems I see is people spend that money and then they find out about the taxes later because they've reinvested into another property. And that's where the real hurt is. So oh, yeah. anyway, get hold of Greg, avoid these issues. And again, thanks again.